Welcome everyone back to uh, this month's episode of Pete's Ortho Podcast. We're really excited to be back on the air and back with you all. We have another exciting guest joining us with us today out of Salt Lake City. Um, it's been a real pleasure to get to know so many of you. And as we continue to to grow and develop and make progress, we look forward to meetings. We're going to be at IPOS again this year. We're going to keep moving forward at the POSNA annual meeting as well. So make sure to keep an eye out for the crew there. We're going to hopefully bring some more live and fresh information from the meetings this year, just like we did last year. On today's episode, we're unfortunately missing one of the one of the four. Craig can't join us today, but I'm your host for t- this episode. I'm Josh Holt out of University of Iowa, and I'm joined by my two of my other co-hosts who are Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans and Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital of Colorado. Wonderful. And as I mentioned, we're excited to have on the program with us today, Josh Klatt, who actually we were just catching up. We met each other 20 years ago, nearly. We met each other a long time ago. He was a fellow, actually, in Salt Lake at Shriners, where I was working as a initially as a volunteer and then got a job as a nurse assistant. Um, so that was when I was just starting to explore medicine, really, in general, but orthopedics in particular. And um I actually have a lot of good memories from interacting with Josh and uh, Dr. Clad, I should say, there at Shriners. And so uh, when I when I messaged him to see if he'd be on the program, I was very excited to have him join us. So without further ado, Dr. Clat, pleasure to have you joining us from uh, University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. And what we initially like to do is just get to know some of our guests a little bit more. And we were touching base a little bit, but I know a few of your hobbies. And so we'll introduce you to the to the listeners by first asking you where is your favorite place to ski you're a pretty avid skier and if you could go to not only which resort but which run would you do uh as crazy as it sounds i I now live here in salt lake city and and ski a ton because it's about 10 minutes away from our house with our little kids who are three and seven uh, and grew up in Montana skiing but if I had to pick my favorite place it'd be uh, in France uh, in Chamonix France which why would you leave Utah to go to France is kind of a good question, but uh, they just have gigantic mountains, uh, unlike we do here in Utah, which are, you know, big enough, but theirs are two to three times taller than ours. And so uh, we've been going over there since I was a resident. I had a buddy who was a year ahead of me who was on the U.S. ski team and ended up going over there for a week as residents and have been back literally every year since, except during the pandemic. So skiing in Chamonix, France, just because, yeah, the, the terrain. So you is like little... downhill or what's your favorite terrain to ski on then? Yeah, downhill. And I'm obviously getting older and now have children to take care of. So don't quite do some of the crazy stuff that that we did in our younger years. One year we rappelled into a big couloir over there with Glenn Plake, you know, now years ago. But so I used to like, you know, the gnarly stuff. But yeah. I'm now older. My knees have some arthritis and I have two little kids that <laughs> I can't just be doing stupid young man stuff anymore well fortunately right now you could probably throw yourself off just about any mountain and land in several dozen feet of fresh snow so you'd have a hard time hurting yourself at the moment yeah, over here yeah totally yeah we'd perfect very- and you mentioned travels and i know you've traveled a bit and i know you um, spent some time in new zealand um, after your fellowship there in salt lake so my next question is 
anyone traveling to New Zealand, if there's one place, either a city or thing they need to do in New Zealand, where would it be on, on which Island? What would they do? Yeah. Boy, the whole place is amazing. And it's, it's, you know, fairly narrow, but long Island. And so they have up in the North, it's kind of equivalent to, to like San Diego and Southern California. And then in the South part of the Island, it's like going up to Alaska. And so it really is, and very easy to travel around. And really the people are the best part of New Zealand. Like it's just, it's a beautiful place, but the people are incredibly friendly and outgoing and generous. And, and so Mostly it's just meeting the people, but probably my favorite place to go to was around Tauranga and around there. But, you know, being down to Mount Cook is awesome. And I mean, it's just a phenomenal place. It's one of those you can't just take, a, you know, typically Americans take a week off and rush through something. But, you know, you got to take a couple of weeks if you're going to go down there to really get an idea of what the country's like. Perfect. And then just to bring in a little bit of orthopedics perspective, the question that we always like to know is you have a, a reasonably broad practice. I know many of you in Salt Lake have some areas of particular interest, but you all practice general pediatrics as well. And so if you um, see one surgery on your schedule for tomorrow, what is it that still kind of gets you the most excited or gets your gets your blood flowing a little bit when you are going into the case? Yeah, I really enjoy doing adolescent hip surgery. I don't do arthroscopic surgery, but my favorite surgery probably is doing PAOs. They're just so fast. They're technically demanding, obviously, and, and challenging in, in the three-dimensional anatomy, but they don't have quite the stress of <laughs> spine surgery. So I do now I primarily do uh, spine and then adolescent hip, but then still, like you say, a lot of other stuff, a lot of trauma. But if I could only do one surgery the rest of my life, it'd probably be PAOs just because they're so interesting and everybody's so different, obviously. Yeah. Awesome. Well, very, very nice to have you on the program. We'll get back to some of your kind of personal knowledge when we get the one right way to do things session later where we'll we'll really pin you down and ask you how the how the proper way to treat some of the common pediatric things that you treat are Um, but first we're going to dive into our primary manuscript today which is a prospective randomized trial that you guys did in salt lake looking at plaster versus orthoglast for um, pediatric forearm fractures and so just by quick introduction, you guys randomized by day of the week, by even and odd days. And the treatment was primarily done by the, the orthopedic residents there in the ER with a reduction and sugar tongue splinting, essentially, in one of the two materials. And so the what you found, I think, is is interesting and important, hence why it's in JPOSIN this year, but really no difference in outcome. So why don't you take a couple minutes and kind of tell us the impetus behind this study and, and what you thought was the most important takeaways from it? Yeah, it, it was a really interesting uh, turn of events. Our resident, it was totally uh, Todd Ludwig, the resident at the time, who said, we traditionally treat uh, our fractures in the ER with fiberglass, but at the adult hospital, they always use plaster for the obvious reasons. And But we always hated plaster because when you transition them from a plaster splint overwrapped with fiberglass, it's harder to get it off in clinic and then transition it to a cast. And so the residents preferred plaster, but we, the attendings on the clinical side, preferred fiberglass. And so Todd asked, well, why do you, why do, you do fiberglass instead of plaster? Everybody who knows anything about orthopedics and fractures and molding things knows that plaster is way better. And so we kind of said, well, I don't know. <laughs> we should we should look at it. And so Todd took the ball and like ran with it like at a sprint. 
and you know to his credit set up the whole study and and did massively the the lion's share of the work and so did the study where you know got the statistics department involved and decided how many you know patients we would need etc etc and then strong-armed the rest of the residents into having to randomize and so even in the paper you can see that like yeah the residents sometimes didn't randomize just because they it was two o'clock in the morning and they you know the plaster was hard to find or whatever but but tried to do our best at legitimately randomizing the patients and just to answer that question is is there a difference does it even matter you know like he thought starting out that the plaster patients would do better and have less uh issues with changing their alignment but we the staff were not so sure but like the perfect research question you know that's that's an answerable question and so so just totally ran with it and and if you have read the study or people listening read the study it's it's interesting like was there a trend but also like our tendency to accept a fair amount of malunion is pretty high or really high you could consider it and so so we're now looking into that of like you know clearly the attending you know managing these kids in clinic felt that you know their degree of angulation was acceptable despite you know the classically accepted uh, degrees of angulation but we're doing a study now to to bring all those kids back and say did it even you know should we should we all you know, around the world be changing what is what we consider to be acceptable. Because like much of orthopedic literature, it's not random, but like a lot of our dogma is based on somebody 50 years ago who said this is the way to do it. And of course we believe them and, you know, and, and they did it with good intentions and a lot of insight, but but it wasn't based on any study. And so the next step clearly, if you read the paper, it's like, oh, you clearly need to finish the study, so to speak, on why'd you accept so many malunions, so to speak. Yeah, as I was reading it and preparing, I thought the same thing. I, I have a lot of residents who will cast something overnight, and then the next morning when they're presenting it to me, will be like, ah, oh, and then I remeasured it, and it's, you know, 18 degrees. Should we hurry and call them back and try and re-reduce it and do this or do that? And I similarly try and talk them off the ledge a little bit and say, let's, you know, give it a chance because I think that I probably, if I reviewed all of mine, probably accept reductions and healing beyond what I would say was, is, is maybe the, the standardly acceptable 10 to 15 degrees based on age. Right. right. Um, and just a yeah. couple numbers for those listening. So they had 1.1% of the plaster cohort and 3.6% of the fiberglass cohort require um, uh, surgery. Not as high as I would have thought. Um, so I'm curious, were those cases that went to surgery purely based off of loss of reduction or kind of angular measures? Or are there other reasons why you and your why your team there might take someone with a forearm fracture to surgery? Yeah, it was the loss of reduction. And, and as we're kind of alluding to just, just a second ago, like I think we do all tolerate more than, than the book would say, so to speak. Um, but it was, it was those we did, nobody went to surgery that we said, Oh, that's never going to, never going to make it, never going to be okay, never going to stay. So they were all came back to clinic and like, ah, they were, you know, wildly off. And so went to surgery based on that. So every, it, everyone gets a chance. Everyone gets a chance to get those chance. reduction. Yeah. And although I think, you know, the, 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 like even broader idea is like, well, at what age do you really start? You know, like if you or I break our wrist, like, yeah, we're not going to try this. And so I think another great question is like, you know, what, what general age can you really get away with non-operative treatment of a, a forearm fracture? Which I think you know nobody's really answered very well yet. But another well, that, step. That's, that's, that's one of my questions I was going to ask you later. So let's jump to that right now. So yeah. 
give us an age. What age? And we're say, you know, a, a displaced forearm fracture, despite whatever potential reduction. But if you had to say, what age is it that we should really start saying we need to think more seriously about surgery? Oh, that's a good question that I really think is not so much just the age is like, you know, if I break my forearm, like, like you guys, like I got to go to work and like, it involves using my hands, like a lot of people outside of medicine. And so I think I imagine that a lot of adults are treated operatively just because you can get back to work faster. And so I think with kids, you know, like tibia fractures is another example, like they really do well with, you know, non-operative management, but like the thought of being in a a long leg cast is just like, (laughs) I'll take surgery. But I think so for kids, like sometimes, and I think I'm pretty conservative compared to some of my partners, but like, yeah, I think if they're 18, you still give it a try. You know, it's a nuisance to be in a cast, but it's like, yeah, but it's not going to affect your ability to pay rent and, you know, et cetera. And so, so I think it's less the age and just like what's going on in your life, the older you get. But I think probably some adult fractures can honestly be treated non-operatively if we tried hard enough, but it's just the logistics of it are not realistic. Yeah. Sure. But it does get harder too, you know, with advancing age, just as the study shows. And we all kind of know just, you know, in our experience that, yeah, it gets way, an 18 year old is way harder than a four year old, you know, so it takes more work, more time, you know, more effort. Their, their likelihood of changing their alignment is for sure gets higher with every year. But at least for me personally, I don't have a specific cutoff. It's, you know, having the talk with a family of like, yeah, we can do surgery, but obviously there's risks and, you know, and if we don't do surgery, there's a lot of nuisance that goes into it. And so I honestly think the discussion hinges more around that. Sure. And then has this study unified you guys? Is there a, a no standard uh, in Salt Lake? Are you guys plaster people still, or are you all fiberglass now? I think we've mostly gone back to fiberglass just because again, it's back to the, the clinical aspects of like to come back to clinic and it's just easier to take off fiberglass splint in a, and transition it to a cast than it is plaster. And Todd kind of proved us that like, yep, fiberglass is just fine. But but it's in, in the heat of the moment of the clinic, like it's just way more efficient. And, and as imagine your guys' as fracture clinics, like they're not three or four kids at a time. They're, you know, these huge clinics with a lot of volume. And so time and efficiency are pretty important. Certainly. And then I'd be interested, Carter and Julie, what are your guys' uh, practices for forearm fractures and kids? Yeah, well, I actually have a couple of questions for you, Josh, because, um, you know, I think every institution has their kind of biases and thoughts, you know, and how their yeah. how their group kind of does things. So it's interesting because, um, you know, personally, I haven't been a huge fan of sugar. You, you use sugar tongue. Right. For both, for everything, right? It was either a sugar tongue orthoglass or a sugar tongue plaster. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I think one of the concerns and, you know, obviously you have an extremely low failure rate, right? And so I think this is probably a, an invalid concern, but is the control of the ulnar border, right? And so we actually, most of us have the residents put on a bivalved long arm circumferential fiberglass cast right. in the ER, and, you know, you can get a good ulnar border, you bivalve it, you don't worry about compartment syndrome if it's truly bivalved. 
And then I think the potential advantage of that is that when you see them in clinic, you're not taking off a splint or some people, you know, I think overwrap sugar tongs into long arm casts, don't actually remove them. They just overwrap them. Um, and so the advantage of having already the cast on is you're just overwrapping and you can also wedge the cast if you need to make any angular correction. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's always interesting to hear, you know, but, but obviously we don't need to worry about the ulnar border as much as I probably came into this thinking we did because you have a really low failure rate. So right. just kind of an interesting difference totally. in practice. And I can see the utility for sure. And like, yeah, you just have to overwrap them in clinic. It's even faster and more efficient. I think at least personally, we have a lot of junior residents that like they get up to speed on reductions really fast. But I think their cast application, which is certainly more of an art than just putting on a splint or even the reduction. Yeah. That's our concern is like, yeah, you put on yeah. a cast. I think that's exactly, you hit the nail on the head with the downside of that is that there's probably some kids that get, have longer sedations or have to get re, you know, recasted in the ER because the resident takes a look at their post-reduction x-rays and goes, oh, that's not going to work. I'm not right. going to show that tomorrow morning in conference. So I got to redo that. Yeah. So there's definitely like uh, some downsides. With POSDA and their emphasis on education and training and things, um, I was curious what your residents do for training. Do you guys do a early first, second year kind of crash course training, skills month, skills week, skills things where you really teach them and, and have some hands-on training on how to do these reductions and casting just for listeners who may be setting up trainings and things for their residents? Yeah, we, we kind of do some of both. We have a casting seminar. You know, we just take an evening early in the year. Uh, once a year at the children's hospital and, and do just that look, you know, how to put on splints, how to put on casts. I think it's harder for reductions because like you can't just talk about it and, and have a model, you know, so, but I really, you know, give credit to our residents who, I mean, that's effectively where it happens. And probably with you guys as institutions too, it's, they teach each other. And like, you know, when it is a junior resident, you know, they've been at the adult hospital where they're doing some of it too, but like the chief for the senior resident takes the junior through it. And like, it's amazing how well the knowledge just passed down in a really cool way of like funny how much we don't teach the residents but they teach each other which obviously for lots of other things too but the last time i was in the er doing a risk reduction was years ago in a cool way like man and they just teach each other and they do a phenomenally good job that's a that's a great point it's uh i think we all know at least in some way that you know when you teach people close to your level you're probably better at it. you know what they need to what they need to hear and what they need to know and uh yeah the further we get out from training the harder it is to teach some of that stuff but the same thing our chiefs do a great job teaching the uh, juniors um to add to the theme of every place doing this differently we do fiberglass univalved casts with spacers which was something i brought from fellowship Part of the reason that we do it, though, because I actually am a big believer in sugar tongue. We were pretty hardcore about sugar tongs and residency, and I love it. But I feel like it's part of our responsibility on their PEDS rotation to make sure they learn how to cast. So that's a big part of the reason that we do the casting yeah. on this rotation, because some of them don't get it. We have residents from four different programs, but some of them don't get it otherwise if they don't learn it on PEDS. Great point. We can all agree that it's like a lost art to a certain extent. You know, I'm sure even my cast would be laughed at by, you know, the people two generations back who are like, you clearly don't know what you're doing. Yeah, that'd be scary yeah. to get that feedback. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very humbling. Yeah. But so, I, right, I think that's a great point of like, man, we probably should do a better job of teaching people, at least here, you know, like, uh, we probably don't get a, an A grade for, you know, how well we do teaching casting, which is important. 
So uh, I was sort of listening and thinking about that sort of next step of the study you were talking about, trying to you know better characterize some of those quote unquote malreductions that may not actually be malreductions. And it seems like a sort of overwhelming thing to study because you have to really figure out at every age for each gender, for each amount of angulation at each part of the forearm, what can you accept? You know, maybe in the future or in, in the present, that's a great application for machine learning that's just a little too overwhelming for our traditional retrospective studies. But I was wondering if you could give us sort of a sneak peek of what you guys plan to look at or if you have a sort of methodology picked out yet. Yeah, it's super hard because, you know, like even though there's 30% was roughly the number in the paper that had technically a malunion. So so the numbers are probably there, especially if you did it over several years, but you need pretty big numbers, as you allude to, because there's you have to categorize them in so many different directions. So you need a pretty big number. And the really hard part is getting them to come back, obviously, like with any <laughs> yeah. study of like, they're doing fine that, you know, like you could pay me each a hundred bucks to come back, but like, <laughs> you're talking a thousand patients. And so... So, and most people are not going to come back without some incentive if they're doing well. And so it's us trying to figure out like, man, can you just send out a questionnaire? Of course, that's not going to be what the average orthopod wants to know. We want to know, well, did it remodel some? Yeah. Is it as crooked as you left it? You know, they sent back a questionnaire, but of course that's not going to be really answering the questions that we want to know. And so, so we're trying to bring as many back as possible, but it really is difficult to get them to come back. And so I think it's going to be, it's going to, it took us two years of patient collection, you know, even with the pandemic, but like, oh, it's going to take a lot longer than two years to get the follow-up that we need for that aspect of the study. Yeah. yeah, you bring up a really good point about the the questionnaires too, because I think that's one of the challenges in in our pediatric, you know, trauma, but but otherwise research too with, with patient reported outcomes is there's a ceiling effect because so many kids do so well, right? So I'm sure even if the x-rays probably may not look all that great for a while, but they're going to say they're doing great, right? They're going to be back playing, no pain, no cosmetic concerns. And so that's a really hard thing to tease out. And I think you're right. We, we as orthopods, we want to see what the x-ray looks like, you know? And measure like the pronation and supination. Of right. Like, they're probably going to, those malunions are going to have some restriction of their motion. And so, yeah, yeah, there's no way you can accurately get that. And like you say, they compensate so well, they just move their shoulders and say, yeah, I'm doing great. I, I'm, I'm doing, doing great. great. Yeah. <laughs> and we might look at them and be like, oh my gosh, you're, <laughs> you still have, you know, 20 degrees lack of pronation or supination. And so, so I think we would be harder in a good way, harder on ourselves than, than the patients are on us. You know, that's what we want to know though. Like our degree of sensitivity for an issue is inevitably got to be higher than the patient's but it's so hard to measure again, so hard to get them back. And they're not just questions that you can ask them with a questionnaire. So hopefully it won't just wither away and die, but because of <laughs> important questions, you know, I mean, that's one of the basic questions of, of Pete's trauma. How crooked can you leave them? Mm-hmm. You know, away with yeah. That's a great, great study. I wish you guys the best of luck with that. Those are really yeah, hard you. and lots of work, but it's worth yeah. it in the end for some answers. So. Yeah, I we'll be, we'll be excited to see what you guys come up with in the next few yeah. years. Yeah, thanks. So we're going to shift gears just a little bit. We're going to go into the one one right way session. So I've just thought of a few things, and if Carter or Julia have any other as well, but I've got a few things for you. So put your foot in the ground. You got to make a decision, and, and it's, it's the gospel <laughs> once you I'm say awful. it. It's the gospel of flat once we hear it. Yeah, I should have so, been a radiologist. First question: AIS 
typical curve, 50, 60 degree, 70 degree curve, routine pontiosteotomies or not? I'm pretty, I think I'm more aggressive than average on doing ponties, despite, you know, there's a couple of papers out there that talk about neuromonitoring events with ponties. But I think you can just, uh, my senior partner, John Smith, who most of the world knows is a phenomenal guy and a phenomenally smart guy. And and I think if you compared our corrections, I, on average, get a, more of a correction than he does. But obvi- the obvious question is, do you need to? And, and his argument is like, you take longer, you you expose the patient to more risk, whatever that means, you know, both neurologically from blood loss, from time of surgery, et cetera. And like, other than the x-ray, can you tell the difference? So so I do a lot of them just because like, yeah, I got to show them this x-ray for the next however many years, and they're going to look at their x-ray for the rest of their life. And so if it takes me an extra half an hour to do three to five ponties, like, yeah, I think we, we've had, thankfully, I've had, you know, very good luck with them, but you can't argue with, you know, Dr. Smith and like, do you need to do them? So, so I still do them, you know, I have a kid tomorrow and I'll probably do five of them just cause like they have an isolated thoracic curve. But like, if I do some ponties, I know I'll get it better than if I don't. And so I, I think I do them quite often. Well, at least Perfect. And I think based on that answer, I know the answer to the next question, implant density. So are you a two screws <laughs> at every level if you can? Uh, I, I definitely have not gotten away from Dr. Smith's uh, <laughs> credo of you don't need a screw, two screws at every level. So I usually do pairs, two or three at the bottom, and then uh, alternate the screws. And there are sometimes when I'll add more to the apex, you know, both for, you know, if it's a pretty big curve for pull-out strength on the concave side. But, uh, yeah, we I mean, we seem to have pretty good luck and, and very few, you know, down the road non-unions and, and, you know, failures from that perspective. And so I think it's very reasonable and to do alternating screws in, in the middle. And then um, switching gears a little bit to your hip stuff. So what is the correct percentage of patients undergoing a PAO? So a pretty standard, mostly pelvic sided deformity, no major femoral sided deformity, but what percentage of patients should be getting either a peek into the joint to look at the labrum and, and check out the soft tissues or a arthroscopy in conjunction with their PAO? I think it's really low um, to the listeners. Like I'm certainly not a PAO guru and have been doing them for 15 years, but like yeah, at the beginning it was pretty slow. And so I've probably done between hundred and 150. So that's probably low middle average for the country, you know, people that are doing them. Uh, so I'm certainly not an authority. <laughs> stretch the imagination, but, but I find that most of the time we don't look and it's very rare that people don't do well and have to go back and, and get a scope down the road. And so our arthroscopist is, uh, is uh, Steve Aoki and Travis Mack. And I mostly work with Aoki and, and we've done one together where we knew they were going to have trouble. And so we scoped it first and, and then did the PAO, but like literally one case. And most of the kids, we just kind of see how they do. And, and it's been very, very few that that subsequently need a uh, scope. So based on that, which I, I totally get is, you know, hindsight, but but and an anecdotal evidence, which is not worth much. But man, we have had very few problems. And and so I don't it's very rare that I open up the joint and look in there. Perfect. And and a follow up to that is do you routinely get preoperative MRIs to look at soft tissues before a PAO? I don't. Um, and maybe some of the gurus would say, you're an idiot, um, which I respect. But it does, I think that at least 
and I'm sure it varies on where you are in the country, but I feel like the MRIs are so sensitive that like you see, you know, maybe it's not even a true labral tear or a small labral tear and like, Oh, it's just hard for us to see something on, on, on imaging and not go after it. And so, so there's, I would say probably 10 to 20% of kids I, I do advanced imaging on and, you know, specifically an MRI, but most of the run of the mill ones, which you allude to, like I don't. Perfect. And then my last question, and then if Carter or Julie have any before we go on to the lightning round, is PAOs with open triradiates. Do you do them? And what is your difference in surgical approach in that case? Yeah, if they're close, I'll just do it um, just the routine way. But if, if they're not close, then I'll do a triple. Okay. Which, which I think one of the really interesting things of, you know, kind of the middle and then adolescent age kids are those kids with a capacious socket, you know, so like the radius of curvature of the femoral head is much less than the, than the acetabulum. And it seems like the kids that present early, most of those have a capacious socket that, you know, Pemberton's from Salt Lake. And so we do Pemberton's instead of Salters. But I think the nice thing about a Pemberton is you decrease the radius of curvature of the acetabulum. And so, so most of the kids that present that young, I think, need that. There are some that the radius of curvature matches and, and they need a, a, a triple or a, a PAO. And in those kids, I'll usually just wait to do the PAO just because it's honestly easier and less invasive. And, and most of the kids, you know, are not so miserable that they absolutely urgently need surgery. Yeah, that's, and that's, I would say that's how I very much was. And if I could wait, I waited, we did a few triples in San Diego. So that's, I had done a few of those. And then actually had eye results come and I had reached out to him afterwards because he had mentioned doing them in open triradiate cartilages and just um, changing his surgical technique a bit. And so I reached out and talked to him because I had a couple of kids who I wanted to do something on sooner than waiting until they were done growing. And I've been pretty happy. I I don't think I've had any real growth arrest. And and he mentioned that, you know, really there's never been any documented growth arrest of the pelvis from early PAOs. And so that's something that's changed a bit in my practice the last couple of years, just from communications and interactions. And again, part of this podcast is to get opinions and to hear from different people and and maybe to apply some of those things into practice. And so it's uh, good to hear your approach and your techniques. I think the really hard ones are like those kids that show up after the triradiate is closed and they have this huge capacious socket and, you know, you correct them 30 to 40 degrees and then you have this relatively flat acetabulum sitting on top of a round femoral head. And, you know, I, I would love to study that, which would probably have to be a multi-institutional study, but like, are those kids we should just be waiting and doing it total on, or are we really helping them out? I thankfully have had very few early failure failures, you know, less than five years. But I think that's one of the other questions, which is changing all the time. Like the totals are lasting massively longer than even when I was a resident. And, and, you know, like one of our adult guys said, Oh, we, some of the projections on the new poly is that it'll last 50, 60 years. And so it's like, well, the bar is changing for us because what used to be a failure and a catastrophe for it, for a kid to end up with a total, like, yeah, it's not so much that way anymore. And so, but specifically, I wonder about those PAOs that we do with a very capacious socket that we're just putting a flat roof on top of a nice round head. And, you know, are, are we really helping those kids? Yeah, certainly. 
Awesome. Well, thank you for enlightening us. We all <laughs> the gospel of clat now. Right. Scary. So we'll quickly shift gears a little bit. I picked a few, honestly, kind of broad on purpose, but each one with a, a little bit of a meaning behind it. Um, recent articles um, that Carter and Julie will cruise through and maybe get your thoughts and um, see what we think about some of the more recent peds orthopedics literature. Cool. So I'll, I'll start off with a, a paper out of CORE that's uh, about imposter syndrome in surgeons and <clears throat> something that I think a lot of people talk about and experience, especially early in their practice. Um, and something that, you know, a little touchy-feely, I think, for most of our journals, but it's really good to look at this. And uh, this is an interesting article. Um, Eugenia Lin is the, the first author, and then the but it's actually done by a group called the Science of Variation Group, which is a group that I wasn't aware of. Uh, but it's a group of primarily upper extremity orthopedic surgeons from North America and Europe who it sounds like primarily focus on questions of like classification, um, Delphi method sort of stuff. But um, this paper basically looks at what are kind of two signs of imposter syndrome. Um, is it associated with a person's tolerance or intolerance of uncertainty? Um, and then is imposter sy sy syndrome related to uh, your confidence in problem solving? And so it was a survey done of uh, about 100 different surgeons. Um, and so I'm interested in your guys' thoughts uh, that haven't read it. So do you think that um, people who have imposter syndrome are more or less tolerant of uncertainty? And are they more or less confident in problem solving? Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> I have imposter syndrome, as I figure every surgeon does to some yes, extent. Yes, yes. Like, a very relevant topic. And man, but yeah, why? Because it's like, you know, I feel like I got great training. I have great mentors. My colleagues are incredibly supportive. But yeah, you're like, one day they're going to find out. <laughs> that I'm right. And so... So then, yeah, thinking of why, like, man, I don't know. And I've thought about this a lot. Is it your, I feel like I'm good at problem solving. I feel like I'm good at shooting from the hip, you know, when things don't go according to plan, but I still feel like I have it, you know? So, yeah, so that's a, it's a really good question. And um, so Carter, do you, well, here, we'll start with this. Carter, do you feel like you've ever felt or currently feel like you had imposter syndrome? Uh, of course. Yeah. Okay. People who yeah. don't are either, I don't know, my hero or lying. Right. Know. Right. So, so yeah, so I was really interested because the, so the results of this showed that people with greater feelings of imposter syndrome were more likely to report higher intolerance of uncertainty, which is like one of those triple negative things. But so basically they were <laughs> less tolerant of not knowing yeah. something, yeah. right. Which I think makes sense. And maybe that's one of the reasons that as we get further in our careers and the older surgeons were, were a little less likely to feel that way. You know, a little, you get more comfortable with saying, I don't know, or, you know, I'm not sure what, what's going to happen. I don't, I, I don't know, but that was an interesting finding. And then the second finding um, was that they were the, the people with higher imposter syndrome kind of scores had lower confidence in problem solving skills. So they had, you know, they feel this uncertainty and you see a problem and you're not as confident that you can solve it. So, yeah. um, which makes sense. And I think what's really interesting about this study is that they, I guess there's, there's some psychological evidence that both 
tolerance of uncertainty and confidence in problem solving skills are actually modifiable factors. So those are things that um, specific targeted therapy um, and, and kind of workshops can can actually help with. So kind of interesting, you know, like are these things that we as because as we've talked about, it's something that we've a lot of us have experienced, you know, is this something that we should be doing this kind of training in medical school, in residency, in addition to our surgical skills and our our medical skills, you know, should we do some training on how to prevent this kind of stuff? Because their point, you know, is that imposter syndrome, it it leads to burnout. So, yeah, right. Man, certainly seems like it to me. My life, you know, it's funny, we all like back to when I was last working with, with Holt as like, I was a fellow and, you know, like you envision your life, you know, 20 years down the road and you think, I can't wait to get there and be the guy or, you know, like one of the guys, so to speak. And like, you get here and you're like, I thought I would know everything by now. <laughs> but back to the uncertainty, like the tolerance for uncertainty. But, but I think, yeah, I mean, you know, we should talk more about it and like, cause we'd all have higher job satisfaction if, we didn't feel like an imposter and boy, it certainly seems like uh, on some level and at some point that, you know, we should, and it's probably long before medical school because I'm sure it applies to people in plumbing and auto mechanics and every yeah. aspect of life. You know, it's funny what you don't learn in, you know, all those things of what I learned, everything I needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. They forgot this one. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, maybe cut out the algebra and go into the uh, <laughs> right. the training on how to deal with uncertainty, which would probably be more beneficial than algebra for most yeah. people in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and that was really interesting. It makes sense. It seems like it all comes down to confidence, which yeah. it seems like should be the underlying factor. What it really made me start to think about, though, when you're describing that, is you know, I wonder if there's some strengths associated with imposter syndrome, just like as more literature and books and stuff come out about introversion, which was like historically thought to be sort of a weakness, then they sort of start to show that introverts are more introspective and deep thinkers and stuff like that and actually function better as CEOs and in other positions. And I wonder if, you know, the people who demonstrate imposter syndrome are wrestling with uncertainty and being more thoughtful about decisions. And if we're going to find out that there's actually some strengths associated with all that sort of no obsessive reflection. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, a really good point. Yeah. In some ways it is probably a, to a degree, a positive attribute, you know, like you're probably a better doctor if you're and paying more attention. If you know, if you have a little of it, a bit of it. Yeah. yeah at least some, hopefully you don't make yourself too miserable. Right. All right. <laughs> All right. I'll move, uh, I'll move us on. It's on to the next article. Next up, out of JPO, this is from the Pediatric Spine Study Group, the PSSG, with senior author Sukin Shaw, of course, from Nemours. And the title of this study is Does Transitioning to a Brace Improve Health Related Quality of Life After Casting for Early Onset Scoliosis? So, uh, Josh, Clatt, are you, do you treat early onset scoliosis as well in your pretty broad yeah. practice? Dr. Smith does most of it, but we all do a little, yeah. Okay. When you're treating, uh, you know, an idiopathic kid for early onset scoliosis, let's say you start casting and you're, you're halting the curve, but it's not getting better. It's not one of the ones that's just like spontaneously correcting right. before your eyes. You know, maybe they get to be four, five, six. How long do you, you know, when do you transition to a brace or growth preserving implants? Yeah. Right. I think, again, a lot of it boils down to the family and, and really the kid. And, you know, I frequently use my own two kids as an analogy of like kids are born how they're born. And I have one kid that's just like super anxious and and 
wouldn't be very tolerant of, you know, like surgery or things like that. And the other kid is just totally go with the flow. And and so I think it a lot of it boils down to that. You have these kids that you cast them and maybe it's working, maybe it's just, you know, kind of just barely working. It's their tolerance and, and obviously then the family's tolerance for how well can they handle it, you know? And I've, I have a kid recently that, that we were bracing, you know, I always try bracing first in the little kids just cause like sometimes you hit a home run and like the brace is enough. Um, but I had a kid recently that the brace was working in a pretty little kid, two or three and the mom's like, you got to cast them like the brace. We just can't get it done. And mm-hmm. the fight every night or every day to get the brace on is just, you know, derailing the family, so to speak. And so, but I think it's also on the other end, like you've casted them and some kids just do amazing. And like, you know, the fact that they can't get in the pool or get in the tub, you know, is like to me would just be brutal, but some families do really well. And so, so really the, the decision for me is more that than it's almost even more important than the effectiveness, just because like I joked that at the end of the day, we can't have your kid end up being a serial killer. Like they, they got to survive this. And, and and there are some bad problems that, you know, like we just have to do whatever we do. But but if there's any leeway in the decision, like, you know, question number one for me is how are you doing? And can we get the same goal done or, or close with something that's to them less cumbersome? And sometimes that's the cast. Yeah. Well, I think the authors would probably tell you that that's a very wise approach, certainly wiser than I think my uh, my assumptions about this study go before I read it were. Um, yeah. So they basically use the early onset scoliosis questionnaire to measure health-related quality of life. And I'm not going to go into all the, the scoring system, but basically when they measured the patients before casting, their, their score on this system was about an 85. Then with the cast, it dropped down to a 76. And then after casting, when they went back to the brace, it bumped right back up to 85. And then when they had final follow-up, you know, later on, presumably after the brace, uh, depending on the follow-up for each patient, they had moved up even a little higher to 87. So there was a significant and a reversible decrease in quality of life during the period of casting, which I admit I naively didn't expect. I certainly see that in some patients, but some, maybe I'm just telling myself that they're doing fine. But I, I was surprised to see such a dramatic, uh, measurable effect. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little surprised too. Because yeah, it seems like most kids just tolerate cast. But I, again, I think it's kind of back to like we just discovered FAI, you know, like amazingly <laughs> recently, and yeah. it was just like <laughs> we don't know a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and we don't ask the right questions a lot of times. And and then back to the the imposter syndrome, like we especially don't answer questions when it comes to like mental health, not just in orthopedics, but like in the world. And so I think. I think we're doing a better job as time goes on with kids of like asking, how are you doing? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Actually listening to the answer. You know, another example is back pain in kids with scoliosis. Yeah. The reports are amazingly low. And it's like, my patients frequently have back pain. I think we just didn't ask the question, you know, years ago or, you know, we didn't focus on it as much, you know, so. Could not so agree I think more. Yeah. It also made me curious. I wonder what kind of impact uh, waterproof casts have because I've switched almost exclusively to waterproof bending casts for these uh, early onset kids. And for the most part, they love it. Every now and then there's one with like, you know, a syndrome or sensitive skin who doesn't tolerate it and actually wants to go back to the web roll. 
But, you know, if anyone out there wants to do that study and let me know what you what you find, um, I, I, I suspect it makes a really positive difference. But uh, as I just explained, my assumptions aren't always right. And you still use plaster? No, I use fiberglass. It's all fiberglass. Yeah, we do a hybrid of plaster and then overwrap with fiberglass. So that's really interesting to, I mean, an interesting thought. Like for spiky casts, for femur fractures, a lot of times I'll do a waterproof cast. And mm-hmm. you know, I don't jump in the pool, obviously. And I say, you know, once a week when <laughs> there's a gigantic blowout, like you can carry them into the shower and rinse it out. And hose them down. Like, yep. Yeah. And a couple yeah. of my partners have a total nut. But it's like I've had very good luck, as you kind of allude to. And like... And so if you could do that with, you know, early onset casting, oh my gosh, like. With and I can't take credit. I totally stole it from my mentors sure. and fellowship. Um, and I do let them go swimming. I let them go get all the way in the pool during the summer. I mean, otherwise they might kill me down here in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's something I clearly I need to look into. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll take us on to the next. Um, so the, the next one is from JBJS. It's out of Mayo Clinic and uh, it's. Noel Larson, who many of us know, is the the senior author. And so what they looked at was normative femoral and tibial lengths in modern populations. So we all know the Green-Anderson leg length data uh, that's been used for for pretty much everything that we use for um, uh, leg length uh, discrepancy and expectations, right? So that's what we use to counsel families on how much they're going to grow and what their discrepancy is going to be like at maturity, no matter really what system you use, it's based on the Green-Anderson data. And so they wanted to look at, you know, what are what does the modern population look like? Is this still accurate in our day and age? And so I'm interested for those of you who haven't looked at this, what do you think uh do you think the modern kids are the same size, shorter or taller and when we're specifically talking about legs, how much difference if you think there is a difference? Boy, I would guess taller. Yeah, got to be uh, taller. We know they're wider. <laughs> exactly not that we necessarily eat better but we certainly right. eat more, which i think is what matters but I, and i would guess 10 percent compared okay. to like 50 years ago you know, yeah i forget when the, the the green data was from but yeah it's yeah it's over 50 years ago i would guess 10 percent. yeah carter what do you think i was gonna say a centimeter taller but I don't know what that breaks down into to percent. Yeah. Way less than 10% is what that's going to come down to. I guess like 3% or something. Yeah. So it's quite shocking, actually. So it's 2.2 centimeters for boys um, that just tibial lengths. Just tibia, Um, two centimeters. Almost an inch of tibia. Correct. Wow. Um, And two centimeters for girls. And then uh, femoral lengths were 1.8 centimeters longer. for boys and 1.7 centimeters longer for girls. So quite shockingly different, actually. (laughs) I was expecting longer for sure, because I was expecting, you know, yeah, we know we're getting taller, right? Um, But this was way more than I anticipated. So I think this is a super interesting study because really it calls into question the way that we estimate 
almost yeah. everything, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think where where I'm sure no, Noelle's incredibly brilliant, and so I'm sure where she's going with this is, you know, let's incorporate more modern data into our, our Paley calculators or our however you calculate, right? Um, all the apps, like let's put this new data in there so that we can actually get an accurate estimation of when our patients uh, or yeah. how tall our patients are going to be. So makes me worried about some kids with a piphacea. I know, I right? Me there. too. I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> I better, <laughs> I better call that patient back in. Um, so yeah, so definitely, uh, essentially two centimeters in each bone longer. So wow, yeah. All right, last last up for the lightning round. This one is another Jay Posner article out of Yale with senior author uh, Dr. Dave Frumberg, uh, who's been on the show before. And it is called A Practical Guide for Improving Orthopedic Care in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder. So um, it's uh, not like a simple single point paper by any means that I can, uh, you know, summarize really quickly. But it does a really nice job of reviewing literature and looking for ways to improve your care of children with autism. So I will list off some of the things that I thought were key takeaways that are actionable and simple ways. But before I do that, let me ask you guys, are there certain things that you do, you know, if you see that the next patient whose clinic room you're going to walk into has autism that you might, uh, you know, other things that go through your brain for that visit? One of the things that I've learned from my mentors, I certainly can't take credit for this, uh, and and learned from our amazing child life team here at Children's uh, Colorado is that I always ask the family if there's a certain thing that I need to be careful of or a certain way that I should address the child or anything that I need to know before we start the visit. Because I like, you know, one of the great things about PEDS is interacting with the patients, but you want to interact with with them in a way that's going to be positive for them. So I always kind of start the visit by saying, hey, you know, is there anything that I need to know before we start this visit that's going to be helpful for us to get the most out of this? And usually they have, you know, one or two things that are like, oh, well, he or she really likes to be called this or doesn't like eye contact or does like eye contact or, you know, there's usually they have one or two things that, that tend to make the visit more smooth. And I think the families really appreciate even acknowledging it. Yeah. I was going to say almost exactly the same thing because they're also different, you right. know, like a lot of them don't want to be touched, but that's not all of them. And like you say, yeah. sometimes it's eye contact or they don't want you to talk to them. They want, you know, like, as I imagine we all are, we talk to the kids, even if they're two, I, or a baby, like that's part of the fun. Sometimes that doesn't work, but yeah, that's what I was going to say too. Well, the authors would be uh, very impressed. They even go so far as to recommend that we should consider making an introductory phone call before a first visit with a patient with autism spectrum disorder, but basically to ask that same question, understand if there's anything special they need. So, you know, in reality, maybe everyone doesn't have time to make that phone call or, you know, have their clinic figured out that far in advance, you know, speaking for a friend. Um, but, you know, asking, I think, as you go into the room, like you said, is is perfect and maybe more realistic. Um, before I go into the other recommendations, just one thing that jumped out at me is that they reported the prevalence of autism spectrum disorder as one in 150 children in 2000. In 2018, just 18 years later, went from one in 150 to one in 40. So that's pretty mind-blowing. Obviously, there could be there could be differences in kids or differences in way we diagnose and so forth, but you know something to keep in mind. 
They also um, recommended using person-first language, which is something we've probably all heard at some point, but maybe aren't perfect at incorporating. For example, instead of identity-first language, like an autistic child saying a child with autism, acknowledging them as a patient or a child first, and then the diagnosis. As for the day of the visit, um, I think a good recommendation, which I I don't do, but I'm going to try to keep in mind, is uh, trying to make kids like this the first visit of the day. And so that's important in clinic, and it can also be uh, important for an OR day so that they have less time to be anxious and less NPO time. And I will say our schedulers are sometimes very good at this, even though I shouldn't get any of the credit. Similarly, kids with autism spectrum disorder have been uh, shown to have higher levels of anxiety. So sometimes a preoperative tour for the right kid around the facility can make a difference in uh, suggesting to the parents that they bring one or multiple of their favorite items to be with them before and after the surgery. Also, a nice suggestion is trying to get paperwork done beforehand so the parents can really be there to focus on the kid during the day of surgery when they might be at their uh, most anxious. Oral premedication can go a long way, especially before you get IVs and stuff. And I will say our anesthesia uh, department is excellent about that. And, you know, kids with autism spectrum disorder were previously thought to have abnormally high pain tolerance. And more recent literature has shown they just don't express it and we don't pick up on it. But if we really look carefully and measure their facial expressions, they actually have just as much, if not more pain. So really something to be sensitive to. And I think my best takeaway from that part of the paper was when it comes to pain, listen to the parents. They're going to know better. Some of these kids will tell you, the majority might not tell you, but will point to the area that hurts. But um, your best bet's probably listening to the parents. So no clean, single takeaway from that paper, but lots of little tidbits and uh, definitely worth looking it over. Yeah, and thanks. That's a I mean, perfect, perfect summary, obviously. So perfect timing. You may or may not be able to hear my son. So I have a, a son with autism who is very, very loud right now and making a lot of noise. But I, I, it's amazing reading through this that most of the things we've encountered in different settings, both positive and negative, and it can make just such a huge difference. And I think of it almost completely in a different silo. When I do it, I think of him and his care and the appointments we go to for him. I've never really internalized it and thought of, well, what do I do, right? What do I do in my clinics and what do I do for kids who I'm seeing with it? So I liked this article and think that there's certainly some things that each of us can try to incorporate into our clinics to to make them a little bit more accommodating for, for these kids. Definitely. Good choice. Well, that's all we have. Dr. Collat, pleasure. A real yeah, pleasure. likewise. Thank you. And next time we're going to do this uh, live in, in Park City, we'll all just meet at your place. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. The ski hill's close. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Cloud. We really appreciate yeah. you. Yeah, this is great. A lot of fun. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.